All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for unity that is bound by love, Father. Thank you for imparting your special love to each one of us in time even so that we might enjoy it and embrace it and fellowship in it with each other. Father, thank you for a place like this, a place of worship, a place that you ordained from eternity past so that we could dine on the very word of God, your word, the very bread of life, Father. Thank you for this privilege. May we never become familiar with it. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are ill, that you heal them and bring them back to the fold. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that before it's too late, they be humbled, repent, and receive saving faith. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to, to make an evening like this a reality, something we can rejoice in, Father. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence. We begin uh, with the following on Sunday. Go there. Go Proverbs uh, 4.25. Proverbs 4.25. We'll start where we started on Sunday. Such a wonderful verse or passage, I should say. In the Word of God, Proverbs 4.25. The Lord is our confidence. <clears throat> Proverbs 4.25, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. That's just basically direction upon direction, is it not? Just a variety of ways saying the same thing, just keep your eyes on the prize. That's what Paul wrote about. Stay focused. So important to stay focused. It's just so easy, especially in America, to lose our focus. Up here on the board, Philippians 3, 14 to 16, Paul wrote about this. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's focus for you. I press on toward the goal for the prize. In other words, his focus was on the prize, which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything uh, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. That's a wonderful promise, is it not? That even if you're disoriented, and maybe your eyes are straying a little bit to the left or the right, and you lack a little bit of wisdom or a little bit of understanding, he will reveal that to you also. That's a wonderful thing. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Stay focused is the message. Eyes on the prize, let us hold true to what we have attained. I think one of the quickest and easiest ways to stay focused like this is to simply remember God's word. Remember God's word. And the Spirit promises to remind us, of course. But that is the quickest, easiest, 
most surefire way to stay focused. Just remember his word. Uh, of, of course, the implication is that you take the word in. For example, go to 1 John 3, verse 1. 1 John 3, verse 1. How about remembering his word? What about remembering his word? What can we uh, garner from it? What benefit is it to us to read our Bible, to remember the word of God? 1 John 3, 1. Well, we get pearls, these reminders like this one. Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. In other words, John's directing our attention to the love of the Father. See what kind of love you have? You see it? That's what he's saying. See what kind of love excuse me, the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Up here on the board, I'll give you a hara'o in the Greek for see. It means to see, look upon, experience, perceive, discern. Also translates behold. Behold the love of God or the love of the Father, what love he has given to us. Behold that thing. Remember it. Cling to it. Especially his love. Practically speaking, implies focusing on that which you know to be true. For example, what kind of love the Father has given to us. Behold it. See it. Cling to it. Discern it. Perceive it. Experience it even. Again, verse 1. See. All that's in that word on the Greek. See. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children uh, now, and what we uh, will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Those are good reminders, are they not? We have the love of the Father, see it, behold it. We are children even so we are able to focus on such things because we remember our Father's love for us. We remember that He sent His only begotten Son to die for us. We remember that He used His perfect faculties to save us. Just put that into perspective. He used His perfect faculties to save us. He found a way to satisfy His own integrity as well as save those whom he loved. What does that perspective in Christ look like? Go to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. What happens when you have and you hold and you see, you behold that kind of love? What happens when you behold or hold on to that kind of focus? What happens when you possess that kind of focus? 1 Corinthians 2, 2. This is what it looks like. And you can see the focus in Paul. Verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Yeah, that's it. That's a wonderful uh, example of what focus looks like. I decided to know nothing among you 
except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So you get the sense that Paul was so enamored with his Lord and Savior that by default, by default, everything else in his life paled. He was so enamored with our Lord that everything else just paled. And when he was in the company of others, he just says, all I really want to know is him and him crucified. I just want to impart that to you. I want to use my spiritual gift to impart that to you. How about that? And that's all I really care about. Because after that, what is it after that? Come on, guys. It's, it's what, personalities and preferences? And who cares? I mean, none of us, I mean, let's face it, most of us in this room wouldn't even know each other unless it was for this church or if it wasn't for the Word of God. We wouldn't even, we wouldn't even hang around with each other. Right? Most of you are like, yeah, I definitely wouldn't hang around with you. <laughs> but it's true, right? But what do we care? Because I know that all you really care about is Jesus Christ and Him crucified and vice versa. We're here because we're focused on Christ. We're here because we want to focus on the Word of God. That's a beautiful thing. To have access to that is just magnificent. So again, you get the sense that Paul was so enamored with Jesus that everything else paled by comparison. Paul was about as all in as we could ever hope to be. That's what it looks like. When you're, when you're all in, you're just hyper-focused on the Lord. Your day, you wake up, what's the Lord want for me this day? You go to bed, you pray, and you say, Lord, thank you for this day, for another day to bring glory to you. Go to Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. You get the sense that was Paul. And some of you can attest, the, the more mature you become in the faith, the more that's like you. That at the end of the day, you meet new people, all you really want to know is, are they saved? Like them or lump them, it doesn't even matter. Are they saved? I don't really need to like anyone to love them that way, to want them to be saved. I don't want my worst enemy to go to hell. Honestly, uh, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, man. All I want to know is Christ and him crucified. That was 1 Corinthians 2.2. Then he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the focal point rests on, say, that last phrase, who loved me and gave himself for me. Think about it this way, too. We are dead to sin. That's what uh, it carries, that idea of being crucified with Christ. We go to the grave, right? The old self is dead. We are dead to sin. That's the all-in attitude. You say, what does that mean? That sin is dead to you. It has no more power over you. That's the all-in attitude. Sin no longer has a stronghold over you. In fact, the best sin can, quote, hope for 
is to work through our flesh. But as children of God, and this we need to be reminded of daily, we are delivered. Therefore, relief comes from simply remembering these things. That's where our relief comes from, simply remembering the truth. I was talking to someone, it was either today or yesterday, uh, it might have been John, um, about how beautiful it is just to have a change of perspective. You can be having a bad day, and God the Holy Spirit reminds you of something, and you're done. All, it's all washed away. The, the bad day is gone because you remember something like Jesus loved me enough to come and do the work to save me. I guess in, in light of that, I could stand out in the rain all day. Right? Who cares at that point? And don't you want that for other people? Don't you want even your worst enemy? Because let's face it, there might be, is it probably a good, good uh, chance that the reason they're your worst enemy is because they're miserable. And they're miserable because maybe they don't have Christ. So maybe instead of focusing on the superficial, maybe that's what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. Go the extra mile with the gospel that they might be delivered from a misery that maybe you wallowed in not so long ago and on occasion slipped back into. Relief comes from simply remembering the truth. As Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's the beauty of understanding Holy Scripture the way we do. We have access to the truth 24 by 7. How many of you here have ever been woken up at like 2.30 in the morning, and God won't let you back to sleep until you read your Bible? He does that to me all the time. I'm the only one? Oh, wow. okay. Must be me who needs more of the Bible reading. That's never happened to any of you guys? Wow, okay. I was like, nope. <laughs> How about then go to Romans 6 too then? <laughs> Obviously, you, I don't know, you're not, getting, you're not getting it in the middle of the night, so let's go to get Scripture right now. Romans 6, 2. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Rhetorical question, right? It's a, silly, it's a silly thing to ponder. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What are we doing? Don't be in the grips and the throes of something that's dead to you. Do you not know? And this is what is he doing right now. He's reminding us. Right? He's reminding us. You say, well, I don't know what that means. Well, here we go then. Uh, verse 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. We just saw that in Galatians 2.20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that 
the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Remember that. One who has died has been set free from sin. Remember verse 7. Anytime you lose your focus. Anytime you lose your focus. And if you can't recall scripture like this, then open up your Bible and go to it. You read enough of the Bible, you're, gonna, you're going to start, without even trying, you're going to start developing a mental map of the Bible. You're going to say, oh yeah, Romans 6 and Romans 7. Seven's where he's talking about, you know, the battling of the flesh against the good, you know. Uh, uh, you just start getting a mental map of where certain topics are in the Bible. And you don't need to memorize Holy Scripture. You just need to go to it. Apparently just not at 2.30 in the morning. Remember these things anytime you lose your focus. And just remember that it's Satan's game to peel your eyes off of this truth. He does not, he hates this. He hates that we just read Romans 6. Hates it. Because he wants you to be in bondage. He wants you to be distracted from that very truth. He wants to usher you back into bondage, even as a believer. So his game is to peel your eyes off of the truth. He distracts you. Some of you are distracted right now. I can even see it in your body language. He distracts you in order that you lose sight of such things. That's what he does. He distracts you in order that you lose sight of such things. Arguably, his favorite distraction, anybody want to guess? People. 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 is uh, Usually, from what I can see, even in the Bible, I believe the Bible supports this, but people tend to be the greatest distraction. So you have to be very careful who you're friends with, who you hang around with, who you spend time with even. Because you know for a fact that if they have no regard, no real regard for Jesus Christ, they're not good for you. They can't be good for you. That's the whole point. They have no regard for your Lord. So what are they going to bring you to? Where are they going to take you to in conversation and even in behavior and action? Not towards Christ. So Satan distracts you in order that you lose sight of such things. And that's what happens. You say, well, the per- this person's my friend. They make me happy. They don't make me miserable. Maybe not directly. But when they drag you away from the truth, guess what you're left with? Misery. So they become the agency. Satan's smart. He's not going to say, hey, hey, uh, befriend this believer right here, old agent of mine, and punch him in the face. No, he says, go befriend them, bat your eyelashes at them, or whatever it is you do, and then take them away. Distract them to the degree where they're just not focused on the truth anymore. Because here's the thing. Once that happens, you are particularly vulnerable to further and greater attack. Satan's not a one-trick pony, you see. He doesn't just, you know, punch you in the face and say, did I distract you? Hey, let me do it again. He's much smarter than that. 
He's going to use people that you think you even love. Oh, but I'm so in love. No, you're not. You're in lust. You're a selfish lover. No, you're not. They don't even like Christ. They have nothing to do with Christ. What, are you, what do you think Satan's using them for? Hmm. I was thinking about this. Because attacks just come in waves. You ever notice that? I seem to be on a low, probably shouldn't say this aloud, because <laughs> I just got off a big wave, right? Like Kona style. So I, think, I seem to be on a low, but they come in, a wa they come in waves, if you ever notice. And attacks, you ever notice how attacks always seem to come at like the worst possible times? The worst possible times. And that's where we get that saying, you know, when it rains, it pours. That's not always by coincidence or by accident. In fact, if you've ever studied Satan's mannerisms in the Bible, you know full well that his moves are coordinated, strategic even. Satan is what we could call, in all honesty, an efficient killer. He's an efficient killer. Just consider how long it took him in the Garden of Eden. Not very long at all, right? Not really. One well-architected question, and bam, done. One well-architected question and it was all over. Game over. This is why you must be very careful about the types of questions you let fester in your soul. You have to be very careful about what you let into your soul because no one is impervi uh, impervious to the effects of um, lawyering from the kingdom of darkness. Satan is really smart. And he finds all the little loopholes in your life, all the little gaps in your knowledge of the word of truth. See, say, uh, Jesus was a perfect example. He could never trip him up, right? Read Matthew 4, right? He could never, he could never trip him up because Jesus had a perfect command of the Bible. He would just throw the, word, the scripture at him. And eventually the devil fleed from him, right? But you don't always have that because you're lazy and you're not studying, some of you. You could have a lot more of it, but, you know, maybe not. And you're still growing to give you the benefit of the doubt. And so Satan finds the little, uh, you know, the little nooks and crannies, your little weaknesses, and he exploits them because he's a killer. And he brings in people to ask just the right questions and gets you to, uh, or he sows a little doubt, let's put it that way. That's all Satan needs, just a little doubt. He can work with doubt. Galatians 5.9 says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So I was thinking about that as well. From what I've seen, God allows us... Now, you've got to concentrate here because this is going to be a, a little bit. I'm going to run with this for a moment. God allows us to take the line out. And I'm using a fishing analogy. You know, like when you let the line out let the fish tire itself out. <clears throat> God allows us to take the line out a ways 
before he reels us back in. And I think, in retrospect, in many ways, it's an act of grace. And that once we're far enough away from his love, in mind and experience, we realize that we're miserable. He says, I'm okay, you're so stupid. I'm going to let you run out there. I'm going to let you run away from me for a little while, okay? And when you're out there and it's cold and it's dark and you're lonely and you're missing me, you're going to realize that you're miserable out there without me. So I'm going to let you run out. I'm never going to let you go because I've never lost one. But I'm going to let you run away on your own free will, you know, with your buddies, this, you know, this person that Satan just brought in to drag you away. I'm going to let you do that thing for a little while. And you're going to realize that you're miserable. And some of you can attest to that because you spent years going through that dysfunction junction cycle, right? Oh, I found the love of my life. Oh, I found a love. Oh, I found. Why are you so miserable? You really think this kind? This time is the different one. But they don't. They don't love Jesus. Why are they going to be different? Satan's using them. You'll, you'll get it eventually. We realize that we're miserable when God lets us take the line out for a time. I believe this is why we read so many accounts of where good people, like King David, for example, were allowed to fail, to live in that failure for a bit, and be brought to their knees. It's a favor of sorts by the grace of the holy, omniscient God of the universe. There are just some lessons that are better experienced, that must be learned through experience, actually, not just taught from the pulpit. There are just, you could almost argue, we're so stupid, we learn everything through experience, right? You learn something from the pulpit, we go, oh, that's, I'm so convicted. Go outside, right? I'm so convicted. Are you, though? The Bible says no coarse jesting. You go in your car and Howard Stern's on. Next thing you know, you're like, did I tell you that joke I heard today at work? Same group of you, the same ones, apparently, that don't get woken up in the middle of the night. I'm batting the egg right now. I don't even know any jokes. There are just some lessons that are better experienced. As an illustration, have you ever run out of gas in your car? I can honestly say that's never happened to me, not as the owner of a car. Never. But I've been in cars, especially as kids, right, Mom? Remember that? Oh. <laughs> How fun was that? Oh, yeah, you're on like Route 140. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Talk out. What do you do? Right? Back when we were kids, there were no cell phones. Yet, here's the thing. Here's the illustration. Before you ran out, you knew that you were testing the boundaries. <laughs> right? The little game, right? I got this nailed. I can drive another 10 miles. That light's only been on for like 17 miles. I get like 27 miles a gallon. I'm good. <laughs> Speaking of Matthew 4, how about this? 
Jesus said to Satan, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When there's a big old red warning light on your dashboard, it's time to refuel. Same goes in the spiritual life. When the warning lights on the dashboard are flashing in our faces, it's time to quit putting the Lord to the test. Is he kind and gracious? Unfathomably so. But does his patience run out eventually? You don't know. Ask David. Go to Psalm 38.3. Psalm 38.3. Not only does he allow you to let, he doesn't let you rip off and keep going with the line for a while, but eventually the end result is always the same. So we could consult with David, see how that worked out for him. Psalm 38.3. This is awful. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Okay, we're back to depression again proper, aren't we? There's a guy who God said, all right, I'm going to let this one run out a little bit. I'm going to let you run with this line a little bit, David. We'll see where you end up. And then I'm going to teach you a little lesson. Like Job, too. Remember Job? When he got kind of like, you know, pithy. That's what life looks like when God allows you to run a while in sin. That's the end goal. That's the vector. You might be saying, ah, I'm not on there yet. Yeah, but it's, if, you, if you were to extrapolate that vector you're on right now, that's where it ends. That's where it's pointing to. If you look at where it's pointing, that's what it's pointing at, especially for a believer. That's what life looks like when God allows you to run a while in sin. God allowed David to sin and then live in that sin, unconfessed for a time. And eventually it all caught up with him, didn't it? Yeah. Just like with all of us. God is never mocked. Never. Not once has he ever been mocked by a creature. They think they're mocking God. They think they're getting away with stuff. They think they're able to pull it off. They think they'll be able to do the, you know, I'm going to have one toe in the water and one over here, one on this side of the fence. and one. I, I, I'm pretty good at this now, right? I go to church and then I go back to my stinking life. I go to church and I go back to my horribleness. I go to church and I go hang out with my horrible, un-Jesus-loving friends. I go to church and, I, you, know, you know what I'm saying, right? I read my Bible and you play this dipsukos game, this double-minded game, Right? God is never mocked. We reap what we sow. How do I know that? Because that's what the Bible says. Literally, it says that. And as most of you will humbly attest, when God's patience runs out, we suffer. It's in those aha moments that we really learn to appreciate the love of our Father. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? What did we learn at the beginning of class? See it, behold it, focus on it. What about a God who says, I love you enough to watch you cause yourself personal injury? <laughs> I won't let you go. You're not going to die. 
but I'm going to let you do this thing because I love you, and it's the only way that it's going to get through that thick head of yours. It's the only way that you're actually going to learn. So I'm going to allow it. And you tell me whether or not a holy God that has to watch that unfold. What if you were him and you said, I got to withhold. Okay, what if you're a parent? Let's dumb it down for, the, for, for us. What if you're a parent? Bless you. What if you're a parent and, you're, and your kid, you see your kid being a complete moron? What is your, your first instinct is to say, cut it out, right? But what if you have to, with the idea of forbearance, that's in the Bible, right? The forbearance of God, the patience of God. You have to forbear it for a time. You have to withhold what's actually just. You could go, right? You could, but then they would never learn their lesson because you were too busy coddling them the whole time, right? Mommy and daddy, right? Then the rest of us got to deal with a bunch of crippled morons, right, who complain about everything. I'm sorry, I digress. Where the heck was I? I was so excited about the crippled moron. Oh, thank you. So as a parent, you have to forbear certain things. Guess why? Out of love. Because you see the end. And you say, I know where this is going. And the only way they're going to learn is when they hit that miserable state where they can't take it anymore. And that's good. Because that's when they say, maybe next time I won't do this. That's what love looks like. Love is strong enough to do that, to watch somebody injure themselves, even, to a certain degree. God does it all the time. So just to put some closure on the current thought on the table, <clears throat> God can and will allow you to run for a bit with sin. And then eventually he sets the hook, hence the pain, and then reels you back into the boat while you often tear your own flesh fighting him. And then once he reaches over the side of the boat to scoop you back in, you kick and struggle against the net too. Remember some Clio? You're just a mess. And then as a good father will do, he plops you smack dab in front of himself. And the first thing he wants from you is to confess. He goes, okay, here, you ready? <laughs> and you're a mess, a hot mess as some would say down south. Right? And all he really wants you, he just wants to say, what, so what's up? Well, what's going on in your life right now? <laughs> That's the lesson we learn from David. He doesn't just moan and groan like some of you do. He confesses, and then he comes clean. He confesses, and he comes clean. So let's read that again, verse 3. You're still Psalm 38, right? Yeah, verse 3, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavenly burden. They are too heavy for me. Now look at how he responds in humility. He says, my wounds, excuse me, stink and fester because, I know the reason, here it is, because of my foolishness. He's confessing. Because of my foolishness. Verse 6, I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. He's just confessing. He's just saying, 
this is what I need to do in humility. I need to say, it's because of my foolishness. I'm hurting this way because I'm an idiot. Ever been there? I have. But that's what happens. And God says, good, good. Do you have a, do you have a long enough memory to remember how you got here? You remember a few days, a few months ago, maybe for some of you, you've been on, you know, God's like, I got to really like this one out because this one's like a slow learner. Right? It's been a long, long. Remember that far back when I started letting you go down this road? <laughs> and the ball guy was like, stop, stop. He was like, this, stop. And you're like, be gone. <laughs> right? And you just kept running. Do you remember all that? Yeah, this is where it ends up. I told you, I warned you, but you're a stubborn SOB. God doesn't talk like that, I do. You're a stubborn person. Was that too much? What's wrong with you people? Just a saying, Tim. You're stubborn. The only way you would learn is if I let it out that far. This is why David is given so much space in the Holy Bible. You ever wonder that? given a lot of space. He wrote a lot of, uh, a lot of chapters in the Bible. And he was one stubborn guy, wasn't he? But he learned a lot. And that's the beauty. I don't know anybody, I mean, who would argue against the fact that you learn more from your failures than your successes? I think that's true even in a secular realm. David's given so much space in the Holy Bible, it's because ultimately... David always returned to God, up here on the board, Acts 13, 22. God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. How did David always return to God? What was the, the theme in the beginning of class? He remembered. He remembered. He always came back to the truth. He got bewitched for a time. He got carried away. That's the whole Bathsheba thing. He got caught up in lust and everything else. And then he came back. God said, God, I'm going to let you do this thing. It's going to end in tragedy. Remember his child? That whole thing. Uh, it's going to end. In, I'm telling you, I'm warning you, but I'm going to let it happen. And you'll learn your lesson. And then you'll be able to impart wisdom to the rest of uh, mankind through Holy Scripture even. He remembered. That's how he always returned to God. To drive this same point home on Sunday, we considered a bratty teenager and a parent's response. The two responses were, if you fail your child when they're being a brat by refusing to address the issue, Ultimately, you get a maladjusted, miserable person who's so entrenched in evil that they have to seek counseling eventually just to attempt to unravel it. That's plan A. Plan B, if you block certain blessings, if you say enough's enough, sending a strong message against their arrogance, they turn out well-adjusted and content, maybe even able to connect the dots back to the faith. So if we can do that as parents, and that's a good illustration for us, how about God? God is a perfect father. While he could easily crush us in an instant, he doesn't. 
That's forbearance, right? He didn't prior to salvation, and he doesn't afterwards. However, he is never mocked. And eventually, all sin is dealt with for our own good. We reap what we sow. As I've taught you many, many times, you say, well, I've never, yeah, I've been alive for so many years, and I've never felt the hand of God come down out of heaven and go, Psh. No, it's called you reap what you sow. You are miserable as a result of your poor decisions. It's how he made you. He's the one who he created you, right? If he says you keep drinking that poison over there, you're going to get a sore belly. If you drink the poison, guess what happens? You get a sore belly. What do you think the world peddles? Poison. You keep drinking the Kool-Aid, do you? It's nice and pink and fruity tasting. Yeah, but it's poison. That's the whole point. You ingest poison, you get sick. That's what God says. God doesn't come down. He doesn't have to come down and smack you upside the head with his big hand. He says you're just going to end up in a condition of misery. Do you remember all this? We must be humble and receive this truth. On Sunday, I gave you some perspective on the following. Go to Luke 11, verse 10. Luke 11, verse 10. As don't we have, we've already read one. I'm thinking of another one in uh, James, I believe, where he says, if you're confused, ask God. He gives abundantly to those. As long as you're not double-minded, as long as you're not playing any games, as long as you're humble, the promises are yours. And look at it. Look, he says, Luke 11:10. For everyone who asks, what? Receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. But need I have to say, does Jesus say anyone who kicks the front door down is welcome in my home? Not even close. Not even close. There's a little thing called respect. A little thing called respect, and we have to remember this. Are we a walking testimony of disrespecting the Lord? Where do you think that's going to end up? There's a little thing called respect. I'm not even sure the average American can spell this word, honestly. In fact, the kingdom of darkness is so prevalent in our country nowadays that respect is what some gangster rapper brags about obtaining at the business end of a Glock 9mm. That's respect. Nobody? I'm just going to stop with the jokes. You guys are just a bad audience. <laughs> In the spirit of Satan, who attempted to forcibly seize respect for himself, the world teaches our children that respect is something we demand for ourselves to our own glory. The Bible tells us that God demands respect for himself. The world says, go ahead, buy a Glock, point it in someone's grill, see if they respect you. That's real respect. You know, I killed a guy, so I did a little time. That's real respect. The greatest, the, the, the rappers with the most uh, respect on the street are the guys who did time. 
If you happen to, if you happen to put somebody out and did time, then you get even more respect. I was shot 17 times. What? So how's that, how's that any reason whatsoever for any respect? Unless maybe you were defending our country. Meanwhile, the Bible tells us that God demands respect for himself. But the quirky thing is that Satan does likewise. Satan demands respect for himself. And he encourages it in us. So we are left in the middle with a choice. And just to put things into perspective, Satan would slit your throat if it meant more respect for himself. He would kill you on the spot without not even not even losing any nothing over it he would slit your throat if it meant more respect for himself on the flip side god treats us with a type of respect that we don't even deserve that's the go to revelation 3:20 so he says go ahead ask and you shall receive knock the door shall be open seek you shall find right how about the inverse? Revelation 3.20. How about this? Yeah, we deserve this, huh? Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. How awesome is that? I'll come fellowship with you. I will knock on your door. The point is that there must be a certain respect for the home of the one whose door you are knocking on. You just can't barge in. And that was the culmination of that on Sunday was up here on the board. God doesn't cater to entitled brats. We don't get to make demands on God. We must knock in humility. And in humility, God gives grace. Like this up here on the board, Luke 24, 45. Then the Lord opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Do you have any idea how powerful that is? What an incredible gift that is? An unbeliever cannot understand the Bible, but you can. An unbeliever has no escape from the things we just talked about. There's no real... Um, all the lessons we just talked about, you know, God letting out the line and then bringing to your remembrance Holy Scripture, understanding what it really means, that he's never mocked, that we're going to reap what we sow, that he loves us and he does that for us so that we can learn. None of that does an unbeliever understand. Go to Ephesians 1.15. But we do because he's opened our minds to understand, understand Holy Scripture. Just think about that. You're, you're all turning your pages, right? For what? For what? Because you know that when you get there, there's another portion of the meal you've been dining on for 45 minutes. Almost 50 minutes now. Some of you are like, I wish it was 59. <laughs> you sure it's not 59? <laughs> Right? You're going there with a certain eagerness, are you not? You're still kind of hungry, right? Yeah, because it's awesome, because you get filled up with the truth, Ephesians 1.15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Are you serious? That you may know what is the hope to which he is called, and this is a reference to elect only, of course. He has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Up here on the board. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. It is difficult to get our arms around this. This is huge. But the grace of God, or by the grace of God, excuse me, he blesses us with spiritual sight, which changes us profoundly. We get to see him while alive on earth, and we love him in response. 1 John 4, 19. And then how about the sister uh, passage we noted on Sunday? Go to verse uh, 3.14 in Ephesians. 3.14. Going quickly for the sake of time. Ephesians 3.14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. Are you serious? How wretched were we? No, for real, how wretched were we before we were saved? This is unbelievable. To be rooted and grounded in love? Seriously? may have, this, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled, that's that Greek word pleroo, be filled with all the fullness of God. Are you serious? That's a mind blow. Paul revealed his heart in verse 1, Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my uh, knees before the Father, why did he pray so fervently? And for what? Verse 19. That you and I know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. It seems like Paul prayed a lot for others, huh? He prayed for good things for others. He warned them against the pitfalls of running that line out. He said, don't bother. You're going to hurt yourself. What's Paul's great fear, as mine is even today as a shepherd? Our fear is that you be distracted. That's why I, it's why I have to teach the way I teach very often. It's because I'm fighting, I'm fighting your own distractions. That's what I see happening. It's the Spirit through me telling you to wake up and to stop being distracted. Stop making a habit of leaving this place and leaving Christ here and forgetting and leaving behind all the good things that you've learned. Stop going back to the mire. It doesn't work. Our fear is that you be distracted by life itself that Satan's devices are working in you to your own detriment 
and that your life isn't proclaiming the glory of Christ in time the way it should. Those are our deepest fears when it comes to the flock. And all we really can do, I can't kick your door in either, can I? And say, I'm here to shape this place up. can't do that. All I can do is try to get you to think. To, to take in the Word of God. To listen to what the Spirit has to say. To pray. As I mentioned earlier, though in a negative light, often the best way to lead someone is to ask the right questions. Such as these. I can't remember if these came up on Sunday or not, but here they are. The great litmus test. And I think I'm going to end here, because we'll just be about five minutes short, but that's okay. The great litmus test. Is what you're doing bringing glory to God? Is what you're planning for bringing glory to God? And you can think about that vector. Like, is your tomorrow just another step on that vector that's leading towards misery? Is that your your plan? Is it is there any end to that plan yet? Are you fully intent on continuing in that plan? And does that bring glory to God? Is what you're doing bring glory to God? That's a that's an inescapable question, isn't it not? It's like the question of all questions. When you think about your life and what you spend your time on, your energy on, is it bringing glory to God? That's the baseline question. Is what you're planning for bringing glory to God? Are you storing up for yourself treasure on earth or in heaven? We talked about that on Sunday. Whose glory do you seek? Whose glory do you seek? And I'll close with this. I don't want you to suffer anymore. That's my hope. I just, I don't want you to suffer anymore. I see it. I hear about it. It's awful. It makes me weep sometimes. It's crushing. As you'll see in this week's blog, it's like watching a car in slow motion, taking a wreck. It's awful. I don't want that for you anymore. What I do want and what Paul wanted is that you understand God's grace and be delivered. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of studying your word here this evening. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes and then out to a world that's just decaying. Father, we ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.